The following is a teaching by R.C. Sproul on what is Reformed theology. And the discussion that follows this teaching, which is about 20 minutes long, the discussion that follows this teaching happened on January 2nd, 2020, uh, between several men who are interested, were interested, in starting a Reformed church in Lewis County, in the Lewis County proper area, the Chehalis Centralia area. This discussion centered around what is Reformed theology, with the appetizer being the discussion by, or the talk by R.C. Sproul. This is the first of many, hopefully many, talks to come, and I hope you enjoy it. A few years ago, a professor from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, north of Boston, Dr. David Wells, published a book that fell like a bombshell on the playground of the nation's theologians. And the name of the book was No Place for Truth. Now, the subtitle, I think, is significant, as he wrote in the subtitle, Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. And in this book that caused quite a stir in the evangelical world, Dr. Wells outlined his concern for the demise of confessional theology in the life of the church today. And I'd like to begin our series by reading a brief comment from that book by Dr. Wells. He makes this statement. The disappearance of theology from the life of the church and the orchestration of that disappearance by some of its leaders is hard to miss today, but oddly enough, not easy to prove. It is hard to miss in the evangelical world in the vacuous worship that is so prevalent, for example, in the shift from God to the self as the central focus of faith, in the psychologized preaching that follows this shift, in the erosion of its conviction, in its strident pragmatism, in its inability to think incisively about the culture, and in its reveling in the irrational. I recently attended a meeting in Philadelphia of the board of an organization known by the acronym ACE, which is the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which was brought together in the first place largely through the stimulus provided by Dr. Wells's book, for this group is concerned to help call the church back to its confessional foundation, understanding that Christianity has a theology. Now, the purpose of this series that we're beginning today is to give an overview, kind of a, a glimpse of the essence of that theology that is called Reformed theology, as distinguished from other branches of historic Christianity. Now, we won't have the time or the opportunity to go into all of the details of Reformed theology, but I want to give sort of a compendium, an introduction to the main ideas that we find in Reformed theology. And the first thing I want to say today 
is that Reformed theology is a theology. Now, that sounds rather redundant, I realize that, but I want to make this distinction clear, that there is a difference between religion and theology. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from a personal experience that I had several years ago when I was invited by the faculty and the administration of a college in the Midwest that was a Christian college, and they were without a president at the time, and as a result, the school was going through a period of self-evaluation, and they asked me to come to address the faculty on the subject, what is a Christian college? And when I appeared on the campus, the dean greeted me and gave me the cook's tour of the facilities, and as we were going through the faculty office building, I noticed one of the office doors had the name stenciled across the top of the door, Department of Religion. And I didn't say anything, I just sort of fouled it back in my mind for a few moments, and then later on that evening, as I addressed the faculty, on the question, what is a Christian college, before I began my message, I asked them a question. I said, I noticed this afternoon that you have here at this institution a department of religion. And my question is, has this department always been called the department of religion? And there was an elderly professor in the back of the room who raised his hand, and he said, no, it used to be called the Department of Theology. But we changed it about 30 years ago to the Department of Religion. And I said, well, why did you change it? And he didn't know. And I asked the rest of the faculty, and they began to guess why they changed it. They said, well, maybe to make it easier for our students to transfer their academic credits from our institution to other universities and so on. But I took off on that point to, to address the question, what is a Christian college, or what is Christian education? And I reminded my colleagues that evening that there is a profound difference between the study of religion and the study of theology. Now, for those who are watching this presentation, I have put on my blackboard uh, a brief diagram where I distinguish between two approaches to the question of faith. One I call God-centered, and the other I call man-centered. And the illustration that I use here has a circle with the word theology in it, and a line coming underneath it to a sub-circle which says anthropology. And the purpose of my diagram is to show that in a God-centered approach to faith, the discipline or the study of humanity, the science of anthropology, is subsumed under the science of theology. This reflects something of the way in which university courses were structured in the Middle Ages when it was said that theology was the queen of the sciences, the idea being that all other disciplines in education 
are subsumed under the search for ultimate truth that is found in the study of the nature and character of God. And it assumed that the study of humanity was always to be pursued in light of our understanding of God. Since man is created by God and that we are the image bearers of God to have a proper understanding of what it means to be human, we have to first study the prototype rather than looking at the reflection of that. And then below the center line, I have the man-centered man approach to things indicated by a circle that reads anthropology, and then under that is a smaller circle that says religion. If we go to secular universities today and study religion, usually that study will take place in the context of the department of sociology or of anthropology. And the difference is this. The study of theology is the study of God Himself, first and foremost. The study of religion is the study of a particular type of human behavior. We notice that there are all kinds of religions in the world. And when people are involved in religion, they're involved in certain characteristic things like prayer and worship and sacrifice and uh, singing and devotions and that sort of thing, all of which belong to the trappings of human religion. And when we study religion from a human perspective, we are examining how people who have certain beliefs about the supernatural behave in their personal lives and in their cultic lives. But when I say at the outset that Reformed theology, when I say that Reformed theology is a theology, not a religion, I mean by that that it is not simply a way of behaving that we can determine by studying the affairs of men, but rather it is a belief system. It is a belief system that is indeed an entire life and worldview with God at the center. Now we live in a culture that has certain axioms and adages that are popular in the uh, nomenclature of the day. You know, you've heard it said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. And that idea communicates that what God is really concerned about with us is that we be religious. Doesn't matter what the religion is as long as we're sincerely religious. Well, that idea is on a collision course with biblical Christianity because in the first instance, the Bible acknowledges that man is incurably religious. He's homo religiosus and that wherever we look in the world, we find all kinds of manifestations of religion. When the Jewish people were called by God and consecrated and set apart to be a holy nation, they were not the only religious people in the world. All the nations around them had their peculiar religions. But when God 
made his covenant with his people and called them to be holy, to be different, at the very beginning of his law, he made certain things absolutely clear. The first being is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. At the very beginning of the Old Testament uh, covenant at Sinai was an emphasis on faith that was to be different from other religions. A faith that would be focused and centered on the character of God Himself. Now we know what happened very early in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. We recently had a conference in Orlando on the essentials of the Christian faith where I called attention to an incident that is recorded for us in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. And I'll read a part of this uh, episode to you, beginning at verse 17. We read this, Now when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Now imagine this scenario. Moses is just now returning from Mount Sinai. He has been alone with God, conversing with God, as it were, face to face. And when he comes down from the mountain, he meets Joshua. And Joshua comes to Moses and he says, I hear this loud noise coming from the camp. And Joshua's first instinct was to guess that there was some kind of war going on because you don't hear this kind of hooping and hollering and shouting from a mass of people except on the field of combat. But as he drew closer, he said, wait a minute, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And he realized that he was approaching the whole assembly of the people of Israel as they were gathered for religious observations, singing lustily in their celebration of their religion. But it was a celebration that centered on a golden calf. A golden calf that the people had imposed and begged the high priest Aaron to make for them. That they could have a God like all of the other nations. A God that was tangible. A God they could see. A God that was contemporary a God that was relevant, a God they could get excited about. And the first high priest consecrated by God Himself acceded to these demands from the people and built them a golden calf. Now, in the meantime, while this was going on initially, Moses, you recall, had been on Sinai in a relationship with God. 
And God knew what was going on at the foot of the mountain. Moses didn't. Listen to what God says to Moses in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I will consume them. Now the people were engaged in religion. But the religion they were celebrating was a religion that had a theology of this world, a theology that distorted and corrupted the very character of God, a theology that moved away from true and honorable worship of God to the worship of creaturely man-made things. And God said to Moses, look at this. They're worshiping this calf, and they're saying, this is the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, as if that calf made by their own hands could have delivered them from anything. They prayed to the calf, they offered worships and sacrifices to this calf, and the calf was deaf, the calf was dumb, it couldn't see anything, it couldn't do anything, it was not omnipotent but impotent but it was a substitute for the living God. Now, in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that God has revealed Himself through the things that are made so clearly and so manifestly that everyone in this world knows the eternal power and deity of God. And yet the primary sin of the human race is to take that knowledge of God and to push it down, to do what the, what the Apostle says in Romans, to suppress the truth and hold it in unrighteousness and then exchange that truth for a lie and serve the creature rather than the Creator. The exchange is between the uncorruptible transcendent, holy God who is for the corruption of creaturely things. In other words, friends, the most basic sin that we, not just pagans in far-off aborigine lands or in primitive tribes commit, but that we commit is the besetting sin, the proclivity for idolatry. And idolatry involves religion. But even the Christian religion can be idolatrous. When we strip God of His true attributes and place at the center of our worship something other than God Himself. 
Now, if we're going to look at the essence of, of Reformed theology, I have to say to you that the most strict focus of Reformed theology is on theology, on the knowledge of the true God. We live in a day when people say theology doesn't matter. This is what David Wells was decrying in his book, No Place for Truth. What counts is feeling good, being ministered unto in our psychological needs, having a place where we can feel the warmth and, and, of fellowship and have a sense of belonging and of relevance. And theology is something that divides, something that stirs up controversy and debates. We don't need doctrine, we're told. We need life. Well, at the heart of Reformed theology is the affirmation that theology is life because theology is the knowledge of God. And there's no Im more important knowledge that exists to inform our lives than the knowledge of God. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. There were scandals in the priesthood. There, was problems of, there were problems of immorality, both among the Roman Catholic people and among the Protestant people. And Luther at that time said, Erasmus attacked the Pope in his belly. He said, I've attacked him in his doctrine. And Luther even admitted, he said, we find scandalous behavior among our own people, but what we're trying to do first is come to a sound understanding of God because our lives will never be reformed. Our lives will never be brought into conformity to Christ until we first have a clear understanding of the original form, of the model, of the ideal, of true humanity that is found in Christ. And that's a matter of theology. So we start with the clear acknowledgement that the Reformed faith is a theology a theology that permeates the whole structure. Yeah, so video one, what'd you guys think? I feel like this is, you know, this is just a, the tip of the iceberg, you know, it's more of the basics, more of the fundamentals, and right. I don't know that any of, well, I'm not gonna presume, I don't know that any of us disagree with any of that, you know? Right. It's, it's more so, hey, how does, how do you view religion as opposed to how do you view, you know, God and, and mm. God and the study of theology more so affecting all of your life. You know, it's not just this idea yeah. of, oh, we are people and we have this religion and, and what, how do we manipulate it? It's like, no, right. who is God and how does God, how does us, the knowledge of God and our worship of Him affect our lives? It affects, you know, top down everything else. So that, that idea, I don't know if that's specific really to reformed theology, but maybe it is. Uh, maybe it's something that you don't find in a lot of well, circles. Well, I think it's specific to reform, but I don't think it's unique to reform. I think there's others that wouldn't necessarily call them reform to have a similar perspective. But, yeah. But, and fortunately, I think now there's people that <coughs> say they're reformed and, hmm. that don't have a perspective. I mean, yeah. the, the PC, in theory, the PCUSA is a reformed church, right? Hmm. I and mean, they still call themselves reformed. Right. But I don't know if you get this same. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this would be. Well, I don't. Know. I don't know if they disagree with this. Really, I mean, I think. Yeah. That'd be tough to call yourself an evangelical. Evangelical and say no. It's all about me. I mean, mm. You know. 
I don't know how easy it is to create a God in our own image. For sure. That's what he's talking about. Right. I just mean that I think we do that. We all do that. Sure. But Mm -hmm. it would be really interesting for me to have a church leader to look at this and go, no, no, I don't agree with that. (laughs) No, No. we've got to start with us first. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's... (laughs) When we get away from that kind of thinking, I think it's when you know when people start taking scripture and pulling it apart piecemeal and, and twisting it, taking it out of context to make it say, like you said, what we want it to say to make God who we want God to be. We're tweaking what you know what understanding we have of God into we're twisting it enough to make God how we want him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when a lot of churches get in trouble, like you were saying with the PCUSA and um, and churches that end up having women and pastorship and other things that just throwing the scripture out you know as it's with what it says in context and our understanding of God both through this and then just viewing the world around us and and the women leadership could be a great example of of the culture affecting the church in a way where the church says oh well we need to change what we're doing because man is a man in the human humanity humanity is unhappy with our supposed, you know, chauvinism. Mm -hmm. And so we need to allow women into all the places that men are because, you know, we're egalitarian. And it's, it's kind of man becoming subservient to man as opposed to, well, this may offend the political correctness or the, you know, your polite sensibilities in this day and age, but we didn't make this rule, God did. Mm -hmm. And we're subservient to what he says. And so if we have a problem with it, one of the things Doug Wilson says in here is, um, is he says, uh, I think this is one of the things that I underlined. Um, maybe, I hope I underlined it. Um, but he, he says in here that, uh, that evangelicals, or that people need to know that, um, uh, that we come, oh yeah, <clears throat> on page uh, 38, he says, <clears throat> we've consequently affirmed the uh, ultimacy of scripture we must self-consciously presume the triune God of Scripture and all that we teach and preach. Sinful mankind comes before the bar of Scripture as the accused and empathetically not as the judge. Just kind of like we need to approach God in that sense of like we're the ones that have the problem. God's not in the dock, as C.S. Lewis famously yeah. said. We're the ones in the dock. Um, and we don't get to you know question question the things that he's done. So I, you know, I, I hear a lot of people in... Evangelical circles talk about, well, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And it's kind of, they say that ad nauseum to the point where it's like, well, it actually is a religion, you know, because James calls it a religion. But I really liked what he had to say there about how theology is something where we understand God. And religion is, is like, at least in this context, is like the way we under, the way man understands ourselves kind of I think I think that goes along with you know this idea that maybe in a couple decades ago you know you could have called someone deeply religious and that would have been a compliment and and today to call someone deeply religious is to is to who knows what you're saying about that person (laughs) I've met some people who are deeply religious that were crazy (laughs) flat out crazy you know and religious you know they've created their own religion and Mm -hmm. so they think well as long as I I do these things religiously Mm -hmm. then I'm religious and it's gotten that whole terminology has really just been extracted from God completely and it's really become a man thing and not a God thing and so even though 
this video is bold. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> and it's even more so, right. I think, uh, rel- yeah. relevant to our time. I think it's one thing that's really neat about, about good theology um, is that it stands the test of time. <laughs> like, yeah. it, like you said, this is, this is old, but, you know, you can read things written by some of the, you know, people from like the third century, fourth century, it's good theology that is it's solid. I mean, you're mm-hmm. going to abide by it today, this much time later. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's, um, I also thought his, I didn't quite, I wasn't able to quite trip, uh, jot them all down, but his, uh, quoting David Wells, the No Place for Truth book, mm-hmm. um, he talked about modern evangelicalism as being a place of vacuous worship. Mm-hmm. We're quick to compromise. We psychologize our teaching. We're pragmatic and not convicted. We can't think critically. We're irrational. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Doug Wilson says in here is that the next Reformation needs to happen within the evangelical world. That's where the Reformation is most needed right now. Because evangelicals have, you know, we've found ourselves in an area where a lot of us are no longer evangelical, even though we bear the name. Um, and so, man, that's. This is exactly the kind of thing I, I want no part of. I, I, I'm not saying that I want to be a part of a church where the worship, you know, is up to my like hipster sensibilities. But at the same time, it's very easy to be have vacuous worship among a bunch of adults and to have genuine heartfelt worship in a three-year-old. You know, to, to see a, a three-year-old worshiping God is not the same. So that kind of childish faith, childlike faith, that's a beautiful thing. Vacuous worship is, you know, showing up to church in your pajamas and, you know, telling, telling, sharing movie quotes during the sermon. That's the kind of vacuous worship that I think David Wells is probably referring to and the kind that I would prefer not to... What does the word vacuous mean? Uh, the way I understand the word vacuous is kind of lacking of any type of substance. Yeah, okay. Just it's kind of like... It's in a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been devoid. There's nothing right. in there. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that the interesting, the, his whole approach to this, the introduction to, it's interesting that he just basically compared two words, mm-hmm. and it, that's what I love about his teaching. So, but um, I mean, because I think that is a, I said earlier that I don't, I would be surprised if any mainline church leader disagreed with this, but I think the issue is that a lot of church leaders don't begin with this. Mm-hmm. They begin with, well, yeah, there's this God, let's figure out how to approach him. That's coming from the man, as opposed to there, there's this God who is everything to us. We need to study him. We need to understand him. We need to, and then the way we approach him comes from that, as opposed to, you know, what's going to, what's going to make our people feel good when we come in Sunday morning or how, you know, what's going to feel, help the uh, seekers to feel better when they come in or what what's going to make our you know, I don't I mean there's a just it's a different perspective of how you go about your approach to God mm-hmm. is because I mean it's uh, I don't know it, it's a, <laughs> a lot of it is very um, what's the word vacuous yeah. oh, just, <laughs> well I just going to say pretty um, arrogant mm. to say yeah Okay, I know this is God over here. Let's all gather together and figure out how to worship Him on Sunday morning, as opposed to uh, God is other than me, and yeah. I need to I need to give my heart and soul to and mind to studying Him and understanding yeah. Him and, and approaching Him with reverence. And you know, yeah. it's a whole different 
I mean, that's just a different approach to how no. you come to him. So. Yeah, approaching boldly is not approaching the throne of grace boldly is not the same thing as approaching the throne of grace grace flippantly. Right. And I think right. that's or arrogantly. Or, or arrogantly. Different than him. Yeah. Exactly. Do we care whether God says what he said to Moses to the church today? And would he say that kind of thing to the church today? That scares me, quite frankly, because I think he would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there may be even, there may be many well-meaning churches that start out with this idea. Mm. And I don't know yeah. that a lot of churches start you know, a drift of this completely. Right, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, over, over time, it's the little, what, what infiltrates the church? How much, how much weight do you, do you afford to opinions and people's comments and requests and, hmm. um, you know, complaints? And do you stay centered, you know, on, on this idea? And I guess, you know, making sure that you're, you're there and not, Drifting, because yep. I think a lot of well-meaning churches can start there, right? But then culture and society gets the better of them, you know. The, is well, it, I mean, how long was Moses on the mountain? Was it? Oh, was it forty days? Forty days. I, yeah. say it's a while. I think it was forty days. But that's not years. very long for a church days. to drift. For a church to drift. <laughs> Didn't take so long. <laughs> and, and I loved what he said about, you know. They were sincerely worshiping the golden calf. Yeah. They were, you know, they had their whole hearts into it. Now, we don't know exactly how sincere they all were, but God's not all that interested in our sincerity if we're worshiping idols. You know? Yeah, his, his quote of, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And that's, that's, the, that's the thought in most mainline, mainline uh, yep. religions. Yeah. You know, the, the Unitarian, the... This and that, it's like, oh, well, we all believe in mm. a God, right? And you know, you can you can worship it as you will, as long as you're sincere in that, right? We'll respect that. Mm-hmm. Sure. That idea permeates all of, of so much culture today. It's well, and evangelicals are very um, apt to come at it from a total, um, you know, almost like a total non-religious. Uh, approach entirely from the standpoint of like it's I don't care what other people have said about this it's just whatever opinions I form that's what's the truth mm-hmm. and so I'll read the Bible and I'll interpret this however I want it to be interpreted and that is my belief in God and they think well and God will honor that because I'm sincere I sincerely and it's his word and so I'm sincerely believing this and it's like that's not at all what that's that's not at all what Christians are supposed to do. That's why evangelicals often, that's why we have like hundreds and hundreds of different denominations, thousands of different denominations, <laughs> because so many people, they, they don't want to be told what to believe. They don't want anything having authority over them. Certainly not, you know, church fathers or, you know, mm-hmm. any type of history or anything like that. And, you know, the Reformation was a rejection of tradition ruling everything, which is a good thing. But do we overcorrect? Yeah, Did we overcorrect yeah. and throw the baby, baby out of the bathroom? We just yeah. swerve into the other ditch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, I think, you know, a good word of caution, too, as you start to look, you know, for me, looking at, at some of this. Um, 
think it's a good healthy yeah. good healthy gut check good healthy uh, you yeah. know, check of the convictions too you know of like okay you know this is what we this is what we believe this is the the tenets of, of what our our theology I think is but I don't want to come off you know too arrogant hmm. given all the other you know belief system you know all the other theologies out there um, right you know, are, we, are we certain that this is exactly the way that, we, that it needs to be done sure you know and so I want to be careful a little bit with something bad but but don't want to go like oh well you know evangelicals over here mm-hmm. you know that don't believe all of this you know well they can just be fine doing what they're doing too at some point you have to take a stand for the scriptures and say well no this this has stood the test of time and right. and this does ring true according to oh I don't know all of history other than the last 50 years so hmm, right I wonder what I'm going to believe there yeah I don't, know, I don't know if that makes sense but you know it's it's kind of like um, you know not wanting to be arrogant but you know, knowing where where to draw the line, hmm. type of thing. Well, and it's it's you know we need to have we need to not be pragmatic. We need to be convicted, and I think God will honor our convictions. You know, genuinely held, sincerely held. I think He will honor sincere convictions as long as they're grounded in a faith in Christ and you know an understanding that God is uh, sovereign over even you know sovereign and. Pulling us through lots of bad theology. You know, you think back through your life and you've held theological positions that you probably weren't a heretic at the time for believing, but you don't believe them anymore. Mm-hmm. You supposedly, hopefully, we've, we're maturing out of some of those immature beliefs that maybe we start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I, I think so. At least. Dallas Willard once said that he is pretty sure that about 20% of his theology is incorrect. The only problem is he's not sure which 20% it is. And I think that's a healthy perspective that, and I've often said that I believe that I have a great power to confuse myself and mislead myself, Mm -hmm. but I believe that the Holy Spirit's power to set me back on the right path is more powerful than my ability to to mislead myself. And I think that's really important. And that's where the... What you were saying, Joe, is this is the sincerity of pursuing God. If we're we're pursuing God to know Him and to understand Him and to that's our our intent, then yeah, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to misinterpret passages, we're going to get led astray because we really want this to be true. You know? But if we're sincerely pursuing God and, and we're, we're studying theology to understand Him, mm-hmm. then I believe the Holy Spirit is going to yeah. you know, correct and change and balance us, and that's why it's so important to be sharpened by men around, you know, and to... And to rely on the church fathers and to yeah. really, you know, not just go off in a vacuum. And you know, my dad used to always say, I don't need church. I just, well, and he didn't read the Bible either. So that was a little bit confusing. But um, anyway, he would say, you know, he didn't like going to church for, there was a phase where he didn't like going to church because there were strange people there and they did weird things, you know. Well, the shaman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, had, he actually had a good point, you know. Yeah. But, <laughs> We went to United Methodist Church when we were young, and we left the church finally when they got a, a female pastor who had a shaman husband, a Native American shaman, and they, they kind of started doing the service. And we like, okay, at that point, my mom said, okay, I think we better check out of here. Um, I feel like, and maybe it's, maybe it's just, um, 
maybe it hasn't always, maybe it's not just now, but I feel like um, I talked to a lot of people at the hospital as a nurse that, you know, we'll get to talking about Christianity, faith, religion, whatever. And a lot of people say that, like, oh, well, I don't need church. I, I do my own thing. Right. You know, or I, I, you know, I believe what I believe about God. And it's a personal and, thing. And it's a personal thing, yeah. And, and I think that's, um, I guess, something that, that gets a lot of people in trouble is like, well, I don't need, um, I don't need to be with the church in mass to get an understanding of God. When, like what we were saying, it, like, not only is our theology dictated to by scripture, but also by spending time with other men with, mm-hmm. Like the iron sharpens iron, you know. I might say like, "Oh, I was reading this the other day, and this is what I thought about it," and it might be, you know, pretty off point. And somebody say, "Well, now hold on a minute, because if you read this scripture, you know, that interpretation is, you know." And I maybe just didn't catch that. I might innocently have wandered yeah. into no man's land theologically, but by having a, a a good group of believers who are doing their utmost also to be informed theologically. Um, it just prevents us all from, again, en masse, just kind of wandering off into mm-hmm. whatever we want. Um, yeah. Which, I, you know, a lot of people that are like, oh, well, I do my own thing. Well, yeah, your own thing's pretty crazy. So, <laughs> like, I'm not surprised. Right. Yeah. <laughs> your own thing always involves um, <laughs> nine holes of golf on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. Just really get a sense of who God is on that fifth green, you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think one of the things that I, I think about when I look at the uh, when I look at scripture and how scripture has been at least I'm convinced it has been faithfully passed down over two thousand years. God has faithfully preserved His word in the midst of many many wicked, corrupt, heretical people holding it. And I think about how the Spirit is moving in different places at different times. And at the time of the Reformation, the Spirit. I believe felt like fire on on these reformers, and that it was it was something that had been brewing for a while. But if you had lived, say, uh, the 13th century, you only had one church to go to, mm-hmm. um, and and so it's not like you couldn't be a part of that and be a faithful believer, in spite of the some of the rotten stuff that the church was actively promoting. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that Jesus seems to um, advocate for when he tells the story of the of the widow's might is that she was giving her money she was giving her tithe to a very corrupt church at the time because the Jews had completely corrupted it mm-hmm. and yet her tithe given in faith to God could be used you know could be used for God's glory and so I think I think that's as we come before God looking to see Lord do you have anything do you have work for us to do in Lewis County is there something for her that we can be a part of that you want to build that we can be your hands and feet for that's you know that's our that's our widow's might that's our barley loaves and fish that we're going to give to him and, and let him do what he will with mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not we're ever going to be on the theological equivalent of an rc sprawl <laughs> um, you know which would i won't I, I won't ever be i won't ever be theologically where he is because you know he's you know he's such an exceptional guy but he's devoted his life to it also. Exactly. Yeah. And he goes to ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he did it and was a good golfer. <laughs> but, but the, you know, just the idea that it's not like God is looking for um, theological perfection. But, but he is looking for us, which is why I love the way he started here. I, it, was, it actually surprised me that he started with theology versus religion. 
but it was the perfect place to start because until we get our mindset subservient to where God is, you know, man is here and God is somewhere up in the stratosphere, yeah. um, then we can't <clears throat> properly understand him if we don't realize the chasm is gigantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very simple basis of theology just sets the stage for mm-hmm. everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I even in in the church setting, um, you know, there's people I know who who don't allow their understanding of who God is dictate their understandings of science, or you know, or of history, and so they have some sort of skewed ideas and some things that I think just flat out aren't biblical, because like, well, science says this, yeah, but if your understanding of God doesn't dictate to your understanding of science, then there's a big problem. Like that's a huge red flag to mm. me that like you need to step back a moment and yeah. get things back in order and uh and i mean that place all you know so much of life i was talking to my we were my grandparents tonight and they've been married 60 no, 67 years or 68 years and my grandmother said you know i don't see how you know i'm so glad that you guys are both christians and you're you know it makes your marriage work and i said well it's because we both believe the same things about this book and and how our life should be ordered according to how God set it up that you know it just makes that work well if you don't have that you know that whole marriage picture just gets muddied and then well I don't like you anymore let's get a divorce um, makes a lot more sense which is what we see all the time yeah. even in the church unfortunately yeah. or your reasons for not getting divorced are entirely pragmatic like yeah. well I can I can stand you for the next 20 years we can you know build <laughs> two different houses you. Put up with you I guess <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, I, I did. I heard somebody was saying um, that one of the one of the biggest building trends over the last ten years has been two master suites. Mm-hmm. Uh, people they'll build they'll build houses with two master suites. One In of anticipation the, of yeah, or, or or just that's the way they're already living. They're living two separate that's lives, insane. and so, <laughs> just it's crazy. On that note, Doug Doug uh, says here. He says Reformed evangelicals must be dedicated to the authority of Scripture. Our solitary rule of faith and practice is to be found in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Scripture alone is sufficient as an ultimate authority to teach us what we must believe and what we are called to do. In an unbelieving generation, the temptation to compromise at this point are legion. This is true in the realm of science, so believers must assert the account of six-day creation in Genesis and reject the various mythologies surrounding evolution and do so root and branch. Few things are as funny as the spectacle of grown men asserting a family resemblance between a sea lion and a bright yellow canary, and doing so in the name of wisdom. <laughs> I was like, we have this little, we have this little uh, uh, ritual in our family is that whenever we read a book or watch a movie or watch a TV show or something, and they say millions of years ago, I say, okay, everybody, now's the time to scoff. <laughs> now we now we scoff at the mythology. <laughs> we watch like Planet Earth sometimes, yeah, exactly. and the kids are all like, she said millions of years. I'm like, yeah. I know it's pretty silly. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's one that not everyone is the... I know. Not for sure not everyone is on the same page. And I know that that's a sensitive subject at our church. You got got big divides of, you know, where people stand on that. For me, that's a... That was like a a salvation topic for me Mm because I was into the sciences into engineering you know I had all these logical ideas about how things worked and then all of a sudden it was like wait a second 
Yeah. Well, I think our buildings doesn't really match up. <laughs> How does this work? You know. Um, and so that idea, and it can be very divisive sometimes for people that have been that feel like, you know, they're very devout Christians mm. and, and yet allow that to yeah. exist. So yeah. right. It's a, that's a big deal, and it's I a hard one. and I know I know many people that I respect as Christian brothers who don't yeah. agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I see it as a compromise because you're essentially allowing the science of today to to determine what scripture says or or what truth is exactly. And if we can learn one thing about science is that it's extraordinarily fickle, and the science of today will be different than the science of a hundred years from now. And so, you know. Trust the Bible before you, before you trust the latest scientific discovery. Which I think is so oxymoronic as to what science is supposed to be, a repeatable process that <laughs> yeah. produces the yeah. same yeah. result. Yeah. And yet it's so fickle. Of science, right? It's yeah, it doesn't even fickle. It's supposed to be proven. Right. Well, and I think that says so much, too, about like some of this theology. It's like, well, I don't think that six-day creation thing really works. Well, why not? Well, I mean, you know, blah, 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 whatever the reasoning is. I'm thinking, if you don't believe that God could create the all of creation in six days... Your understanding of God is skewed. Yeah, well, it's just like, little. It's just teeny. Yeah. Oh, it's just a little bit. Well, that's a big deal. Like that's yeah. a huge deal. You don't think God could do that? Right. And yet He's capable of you know our salvation and everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. That's a huge. I, I remember reading Lee Strobel. He said that when he first became a Christian, he had to become a Christian. He had to ignore the theology of the virgin birth. He said, "I just couldn't even deal with it. I didn't believe it could possibly happen." But I'd become a Christian. And I just kind of shelved it. And then he eventually came to the point where he's like, I can't ignore this anymore. I either believe, I'm either a Christian and believe in the virgin birth, or I'm not a Christian. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off there, Ted. What were you saying? Oh, I was saying, I think, you know, coming from a math teacher perspective, so many, I think, general, the general population doesn't really understand science. Mm-hmm. And so they see scientists that say things absolutely as, well, I can't argue with that. I have to trust yeah. it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people say, well, this is an absolute, so I've got to somehow make it fit to, you know, if, and they're well-meaning Christians, so they're saying, well, this, you know, the, the established science is saying this is true, so I've got to do something with it. Yeah. So we start to compromise mm-hmm. and think, well, well, maybe this will fit in here. I guess I can see how that works, sort of, you know, kind of. And uh, I actually had a, when I was at seminary, my one of my favorite professors was, uh, she was teaching this um, apologetics class, and she was the six-day creation, and she didn't. She was basically expounding on these ways that it it could still fit the Bible, but still fit science. And I remember one day asking her afterwards, like, "Why do you feel like you have to fit science?" And she's like, "What do you mean? Like, I, I just I don't understand why you feel the need. I mean, because and that's the other thing is is, is a scientist." in the very beginning were, were studying the created order to understand God. I mean, most of your early scientists, that's what they were doing. They were studying the created order to understand the creator better. That's why theology was the queen of the sciences, yeah, because exactly. it was like everything was... So, so it's, it's just so funny how that... I mean, of course, that happened at the Enlightenment, mm. where we say, okay, now we can study science just for science, and mm. it's, you know, it's its own thing, sort of. But, yeah. our, uh, our old pastor, Yost Nixon, he's... Um, he just moved over to Greece, and they they do a lot with the migrant population that are coming through Greece, and this that whole influx of refugees and so-called refugees into Europe. 
um, and he had one of his emails going out talking about the, um, the um, uh, immense amount of converts from, from Islam to Christianity. And he talked about um, Europe as having been devastated by the, by the Enlightenment. Um, and I thought that's a pretty good description of what the Enlightenment did, because the Enlightenment, although it could have been used for a building up of all of our faiths, instead it has systematically torn down and destroyed a lot of our faiths, to where even Christians, their faith is oftentimes just in tatters whenever scientists you know, start questioning them. We think because certain branches of science have really advanced and we can you know, build big bridges and put people on the moon and, and do things like that, that all of a sudden we know what happened supposedly 50 million years ago. It's like those are, those are two totally different forms yeah. of science. Right. There's engineering, which is like if it doesn't repeat, you don't have a job anymore. And then there's like the speculative, which is you could call it science or you could call it just mythology of this is what happened, you know, 75 million years ago when some huge event wiped out 95% of life. Yeah, I think what, the, what Dad's getting at is, is very true in that the majority of the population, because they've been indoctrinated by those ideas and read them in textbooks and did this and that, um, they see that as a, a scientific fact. Yeah. They don't realize that that theory, mm-hmm. the theory of evolution, mm-hmm. it has to make just as big a leaps of faith as you do then as saying, okay, I think, I believe that God actually, you know, larger. They're much larger. Much larger. Not <laughs> <larger. laughs> just as big, but much larger leaps right. of faith than it yeah. does to say, oh, I have a, a book here that says that this is what happened, mm. and guess what? It all fits together. Yeah. You know, that, that idea, it, people, it's completely foreign yeah. to the majority of the population. That, yeah. Oh, that's a theory, and, you know, we actually don't have any facts that prove that? Oh. Right. Okay. When I'm teaching uh, exponential growth in my math classes, I always bring up carbon dating and talk about the, you know, and there's always some in the class, like, when I start bringing up the problems with carbon dating, and there's always some, like, no, no, carbon dating works. I'm like, well, I mean, we can look at the math of it, we can look at it, and I, and I explain in more sure. detail, and, and there's always someone that just gets miffed. They're just like, mm-hmm. you're, you're messing with science. That right? can't be like, right. Well, yes. uh, <laughs> yeah. We can date this chair, and it will tell yeah, us it's 10,000 years old. That's the problem. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, my goodness. goodness. Yeah. Who invited the science denier? That's part of it. God blame. Oh, well, the facing is... The original problem in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. yeah. yeah you should be sure. God. Yeah. Determining for yourself. Yeah. You I know better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very That's true. why the word is so important and why Romans 12 2 is, I think, a key verse in Scripture transformed by the renewing of your mind that mm-hmm. will prove what the, uh, how's it end, the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because because of our makeup, because we were made to imitate, we were made to be like God, and so we were made to imitate. If we're not surrounding ourselves with godly things, we'll imitate the culture that's around us. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, you don't be conformed to your culture, you be transformed by God. 